Good morning. My name is Roy. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 through 11. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For the possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they were separated from each other. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie Ross. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, verses 31 through 32, 35 and 37 through 39. So what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth, or any other thing that is created. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Linda. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that makes that word living and active inside of us. So we ask for that this morning, that we would hear your word entering into our hearts, bringing us life, changing us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said... Amen. You may be seated. If you are um, a parent, especially with young children, you know that you have a front row seat to some beautiful moments. You have a front row seat to the wonder of a child, to their joy and simplicity. And you also know that you have a front row seat to the depravity of the human heart. Now, we have four kids, and our youngest is four. 
the two, when she was two, the twos were not very terrible, but the threes were. You know, I don't know if you, that was your experience too with your kids. Now the fours, we thought, okay, she turned four this summer. We thought maybe we've turned a corner. It's going to be all joy and not so much um, trouble. Instead, there has been a new kind of a situation where she is convinced that she can take something and call it hers, and then it becomes hers. You know, so that if anybody else tries to take it, she's, she's also developed this very finely tuned, high-pitched squeal, you know? So that when you st- start to take it, she goes, it's fine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And there's, there's, it's very hard to try to de-escalate from that moment, you know? But there's something in a child that is keenly aware, not just of injustice, but of a sense of ownership. This is mine. You can't have it. Now, I'd like to think that as an adult, we don't struggle with these issues, that this is only children, and if only our children would grow out of this, they could become mature like me. But it's very convicting as a parent to realize that actually selfishness doesn't change all that much. It's just the stuff that changes. Now it's no longer a blanket or a toy or a truck that is mine. It's my job, my time, my free time, my sanity, my, all of this stuff that is just mine. This, this is mine. I realized this uh, the other day because I, uh, last weekend I spoke at uh, New Life Friday night, and so it was kind of a long day. And I don't know what you do when you've had a long day. For me, uh, I, I drive through the Chick-fil-A drive through and... Uh, <laughs> I came home and I had this box of chicken nuggets and, and fries, and Holly was out at another function that evening, and so I fully expected to come home, the babysitter would have put the kids to bed, and I would just eat my Chick-fil-A and watch West Wing on Netflix, you know? And um, instead, I got home and Jane was asleep, but our older three were awake, and as soon as they saw me and they saw this Chick-fil-A bag, something came over them. And they, and they said, Dad, you to, did you get us any Chick-fil-A? I want some nuggets. Can you share your nuggets? Will you give me your nuggets? And I was like, no, mine. And the babysitter's looking at me like, what kind of dad is this? You know, like Jesus said, what good father, if your child asks for a fish, would give them a stuff? My kids are like begging me for chicken nuggets. And I'm like, no, three different times. They even followed me up to the room. I was like, no. And I'm proud to say I did not give them one nugget that night. <laughs> it was my Chick-fil-A. <laughs> there are many situations in life that test our sense of ownership and maybe at a deeper level our sense of selfishness versus this, this desire or calling or, or you know, sense that we're supposed to be generous. We're in a series through the book of Genesis, and we began it last week in Genesis 12, because actually it's a series through the life of Abraham. And we said last week that the story of the life of Abraham is, in general, the story of Israel. It's the story of the people of God. And so Genesis 12, in particular, is really the story of Israel in miniature. It's a compact version of the whole narrative. You see roughly the major points of that story in chapter 12. But it's not just the story of Israel. It's the story of us, and that's why this series is called The Story of Us, because in this story of the life of Abraham, we find ourselves as a people that God is calling and redeeming out of the world through whom God wants to bring his blessing into the world. This is the story of us learning to become the people of God. But last week we said it's not really just the story of us, it's the story of grace. 
It's the story of God choosing people who have come to the very end of their own potential and possibility. He chose this aging couple with no human ability to continue their lineage. And not just that, a man who was so gripped by fear that he was willing to sell his wife out to join Pharaoh's harem so, to, so that he could save his own skin. Why would God choose him? I don't know. Why would God choose you, right? This is the story of grace. And so here we are when we pick up the story in Genesis 13. This is about Abram kind of trying to recover from the Egypt debacle. And in verse 1 it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Now I want to point out a couple things right off the bat. First, Abraham was rich. And we're going to see in a moment that poverty is not a virtue and prosperity is not a problem. There's something deeper that can go wrong in our hearts. But Abram goes back to Bethel, the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. If you read chapter 12 in verses 7 and 8, it shows us that Bethel is where Abram made his, his altar to the Lord and began to call on the name of the Lord. This is where it all began for Abram. It reminds me a little bit of what Jesus says in Revelations 3 to, to the church whose love has grown cold. He says, look, you're, I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. And then he says, now repent. Go back and do the thing that you did at first. This is exactly what Abram's doing. He's going back to do the thing that he did at first. Listen, if you're on a drive and you miss your exit on a road trip and you miss your turn, you miss your exit, the thing to do is not to just stay on the highway that you're on and say, I think this will work out. <laughs> Men, listen up, right? The thing to do is to turn around and say, I missed, the, I missed the turn. We're supposed to get off onto this other highway. And you have to go back. Sometimes progress means going backwards, Sometimes progress means saying, we, we, we wait a second, we've got to turn back. For Abram, he, he was going back, back to Bethel, back to the altar, back to the place where it all began to say, look, the, the best thing I can do right now, Abram says, is to go back to the start, go back to where it all began, go back to the altar and begin to seek the Lord again. And you know, altars are amazing places. There are places where people had dramatic encounters with God, but there are also places where they begin to offer themselves to the Lord. I think in this moment, Abraham remembers, God, this is all yours. None of the potential for this to coming about comes from me. None of the possibility is mine. None of the power is mine. It is all yours. Yours. Yours, O oh Lord. The glory, the power. It's yours. When everything is the Lord's, nothing is really yours. When everything is the Lord's, nothing is really yours. When you come to the place of an altar, when you come to that moment where you say, God, wait a second, I'm going back to the place to remember, to remind myself, this isn't mine. This isn't my calling. This isn't my dream. This isn't my business. This isn't my marriage. This isn't my house. These aren't my kids. I mean that in a different way than you might mean that some days. But to say, God, actually all of it is yours. It's yours. It's yours. 
It's yours. Now, this is hard for us to grasp because in our culture and in our context, you're either an owner or a renter. For most of the things in your life, either you own it or you rent it. And so you're just like, well, well, this is my car. Or you say, well, this is just a rental car. Who cares if I stuff, you know, the fast food wrappers underneath the seat? There's a lot of fast food talk this morning. I don't really eat a lot of fast food, but sometimes. We know either being an, an owner or being a renter. But there's something very different that the Scripture kind of uses, and that's this almost, the closest thing we have to compare to it is the idea of a steward, someone who's been entrusted. These things are not yours, and yet you are to cultivate them, care for them, distribute them in a, in a way that brings blessing to others. God said to Abraham right from the beginning, I'm going to bless you. Why? So you can have a great life, man. No, so that through you, all the families of the earth can be blessed. Abraham is neither a renter nor an owner, but a steward. This is what A.W. Tozer called the blessedness of possessing nothing. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, chapter 2, talks about this. The blessedness of possessing nothing. Having all things, but possessing nothing. This is why I said to you, poverty is not, in it, it, it's not virtuous on its own. And prosperity is not problematic on its own. Some people misquote the verse in the New Testament. They say, well, doesn't the Bible say money is the root of all evil? It doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. What God is trying to do to Abraham's heart is to disentangle him from the stuff that he has. Remember, in, he goes to Egypt with nothing but a promise. He goes to Egypt with destiny in his heart. And even then, he's so self-consumed that he's willing to concoct this strange plan of deception to let his wife be sent to Pharaoh's household. I mean, think about that, but don't think about it too much. This is twisted. But he's doing this because he's so consumed with his own dream and his own destiny. His heart is gripped by the sense of what he has to do to protect and preserve his own life and call. And one chapter later, here's Abraham living the opposite. Abraham, who's got all this stuff now, and yet his own heart is disentangled. Having all things, possessing nothing. It's an incredible way to live. What happened to Abraham? The altar began to change his life. Verse 5, you see the story continue, and it says... But Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. This is the storyteller's way of saying to us, look, sometimes there is a test of adversity, but sometimes there is the test of prosperity. This is a situation where both people are doing well. Abram's doing well. Lot's doing well. Everybody's doing well. And yet there is still a test in the midst of this. There's strife that develops. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced situations in your life where actually things are going well. The business is booming, but, but it's introducing new kinds of tensions between the team or the employees or the staff. And you're like, oh, no, now what do we do? Or maybe even it's something as simple as in a marriage the blessing of a new marriage beginning, and you're like, oh, this is so great, this is the best, this is amazing, and then all of a sudden you realize we have to live together. Like, how do we figure this out? 
and one person's career is taken off, maybe the other's is as well, and you're like, okay, so, so, so wait a minute, how do we make sure that our lives aren't going like this? How, how do, how, we're running into some problems here, we're, and, and maybe the issue isn't territory in terms of stuff, but the, the, the non-material kind of territory, you know, like, this is my time. The, the, those aren't my chores, those are your chores. Why should I have to do the laundry and the dishes? I cooked, you, you should clean. I know you guys don't play these games in your marriages. That's just us, right? Actually, we don't either. We've just heard about it, you know. <laughs> the, the sense of strife that comes from, oh, oh man, how, how do we keep up with this? Your, your world is kind of growing, and my world is kind of growing, and it's all great, but now what? How, why should I give in to you, and when, why should you do this for me? And, and, I, I, and on and on this strife develops. How is Abram going to solve this? He didn't do so well with his first test. How is he going to handle this one? Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will take the right hand. And if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. I mean, this is amazing. Think about this for a moment. Abram, if, if I was Abram, I would have said, um, Lot, I uh, don't know if you recall, but God called me. Hashtag just saying, but the covenant was made with me. So I kind of think, I, sh- I feel like I should choose first, and then you can just deal with it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what we would do. Like, dude, I-, I was the one. Abram says, look, look around. You pick. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. You're like, this is incredibly risky. Abraham, the fate of the world hinges on you inheriting the promise, and you're going to be open-handed with it? Like, whoa, man. Whoa. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. This is a reference to Eden. Like the land of Egypt. This is a reference to the previous chapter. In the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if there was a soundtrack to your Bible reading, it would sound like this, dun, 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 right? This is a little bit of foreshadowing. This is the storyteller saying, just in case you forget where this story is going, Lot's doomed, (laughs) right? And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, thus separated, and they thus they separated from each other. When nothing is really yours, you have nothing to lose. When nothing is really yours, you have nothing to lose. Abram, I think, has, he's already come to the altar. He's already come to the place where he says, God, I, I totally made a mess of things in Egypt. I'm going back to the place where it all started. I'm remembering that it's all yours. Therefore, it's not mine. And if it's not mine, I've got nothing to lose. Could you imagine living life like you had nothing to lose? Could you imagine? In sports, these are the most dangerous teams, right? You don't want to face a team at the end of the season who's already out of the playoffs because they're more than happy to be the spoiler. You don't want to be in the playoffs with a team that nobody expects to win anyway. And and then they just pull out all the stops to do all of these things to win the game and and you become this sort of pressurized team with all these expectations riding on you. When you have nothing to lose, it's an amazing Amazingly free way to live. St. Ignatius, in the 1400s, he's the founder of the Society of the Jesuits. 
And this, this movement, this order that is still around in the world today that has done a lot of great good in the world. And Ignatius wrote a little document called The Spiritual Exercises. And in his pamphlet, The Spiritual Exercises, the first principle that Ignatius outlines is a principle of indifference. It's very interesting because at, 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 at surf, the surface level, you kind of think, oh, is that sort of like the Buddhist idea of detachment, you know? No, it's not. So where Buddhism would say you want to be so detached so that you will not experience pain and suffering, but also not really experience joy, Ignatius says, I want to become indifferent to anything that is not the will of God. The first principle, he says, is I want to become indifferent from anything that is not the will of God. I want to hold it all with an open hand. He says, I want to desire only what is most conducive to the purpose for which we were created. That's how Ignatius says we want to live. Live in such a way that says, look, everything else, Lord, if, 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 this, if the business going well is most conducive to the purpose that you've made me for, then let it be. But if the business failing somehow leads to a purpose that you've created, then Lord, let it be. I want to desire only the thing that leads to your will for my life. That's a remarkable way to live. I think this is how Abraham begins to live. Abram begins to live. But you know what happens? Here's what happens as a result. Verse 14. Abram and Lot part ways. Abram's given him the pick. He picks what looks great. Verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. If this sounds familiar, it's because in this chapter, both men are offered land. Both men lift up their eyes and see land. One guy chooses land that will eventually be, dis- be destroyed. The other guy chooses land that is promised as their inheritance. The difference? One guy thought that his source was a man, and the other guy thought his source was God. Lot was convinced, look, If I'm going to have anything, this is my chance. So I'm going to get it while I can. I'm going to guard it while I have it. It's mine. So much so that even a few chapters later, when they're fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife turns to look. It's this lingering image of saying, that's mine. That's my land, my inheritance, my spot holding it so tightly. Lot, Genesis 11 tells us, was an orphan. His father died young. There is no shame in being an orphan. There is no shame in coming from a family of origin that has a lot of pain. There's no shame in any of that. But what the gospel invites us into is freedom from an orphan spirit. Freedom from an orphan spirit. That, that sort of 
mentality in life that says, nobody's going to take care of me. Nobody's watching out for me. I don't have a person that, I don't have a God who is my source. I am my own source. And so if someone's offering me this, I've got to take it now. And you, you live in your relationships out of that orphan spirit. So even in a marriage, it's like, well, wait a second, you owe me this. You're supposed to do this for me. We had a bargain. We have a contract roommates, friendships, all of your relationships get funneled through the lens of, of, of saying, wait a minute, what's mine? What's yours? You owe me. You're not doing this. The language of rights and debt becomes the most important language. Abram was called out of his father's house. He too was not living with his earthly father. The difference is that Abram had come to see God as his source, God as his Father. The gospel invites us out of whatever household we've come from to see God as our Father, to see God as the source. And when you begin to live life that way, everything changes. See, listen, to be sure, you can live what is a quote-unquote generous life but actually it's coming from a really dysfunctional place. Counselors might call that codependency, enablement. You might think, look, I'm just so generous. No, you're unhealthy, right? Conversely, you can, in a really healthy way, set boundaries. Relationally, emotionally, you can be very focused on what your life is supposed to be about. This is how I think we see Jesus living. Jesus saying, no, I'm not going there. No, I'm called for the lost sheep of Israel. No, I'm not doing this. No, I'm going to retreat and pray. There is a healthy way to create boundaries. All, there's a healthy, but there's an unhealthy way to do that too. A, th- a place that you're, you might be doing those things, but really you're doing it out of self-preservation and selfishness and this fear that somebody's going to get you and nobody's looking after you. The gospel wants to transform the root of that. The gospel wants to get inside of our heart and says, no, no, no. Let's change the, the spirit of the orphan. Let's give you the spirit of adoption. That you can cry, Abba, Father, as sons and as daughters. God's radical generosity transforms us. God's radical generosity transforms us. I sometimes wonder when I see Christians the way we talk about other people, the way we say things about public figures, if we've really been changed by the radical generosity of God. If we really understand what it means to let this undeserved gift get inside of us. I suspect that the problem for the Pharisees was that they had some ounce of believing that they deserved what they had. Well, we're good. We obey the Torah. We follow this. Therefore, God, of course, is going to bless us. The Pharisees believed this Deuteronomy 28 worldview to the T. If we do this, God will do this. Last week, it was so important when we said, look, look, look. The meta story, the big story of the Bible is we never keep up our end of the bargain. The best we do is fail. The best God does is let his love prevail. 
God comes and fulfills covenant on our behalf. God comes and and lifts us up. But the Pharisee spirit hasn't been transformed. The Pharisee heart is one that hasn't been transformed by the radical generosity of God. I'll give you an example of this. Psalm 23 says what? It says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Every good Jew would have known that psalm, would have internalized that psalm, would have memorized that psalm. And then Jesus shows up. (laughs) And Jesus starts eating with the enemy. (laughs) Having a table with tax collectors, those are the enemies. Those are the people who are colluding with Rome and with the empire. These are the enemies. Wait a minute. Jesus, Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And Luke says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking with sinners. And like, Wait a second, you're eating with the enemies. See, the radical generosity of God is going to undercut all of your, all of your exclusions. All of the ways that you say, well, they don't deserve that. Well, they don't deserve that. Well, I can't give them that. Well, I can't show them this kind of mercy. Well, I can't give them this. I can't bake them a cake. I can't do this. I can't do this. I am righteous. I'm sorry, that was meddling, wasn't it? The radical generosity of God is meant to change the way you think about other people. To change the way you hold things that you have. To be able to say, it's not mine. (laughs) It's the Lord's. What do you want? What do you have? What do you need? The openness of that. And to believe, to truly, truly believe that when you live that way, you have nothing to lose. What can you lose by doing this? Well, they might, I mean, I don't know. It's just might, you know. So you took a risk and bought a meal for someone who's homeless. Well, I mean, who knows if they ate it anyway. Does that sound like the radical generosity of God has transformed your heart? So you gave an hour a week to mentor a kid at Queen Palmer Elementary and half the time they didn't show up or they played video games and they weren't even paying attention and it wasn't this deep, meaningful mentor connection you dreamed of. What did you lose? Nothing. You have nothing to lose. What if you invited a friend to Alpha to explore the faith and, and, and over the meals that we're going to have every Wednesday night, all through September and all through October, what if they just showed up, ate the meal and insulted Christians and the church and all this stuff? What if they did that the whole time? What did you lose? Nothing. Nothing. Until you believe that, until you believe that, the radical generosity of God has not yet begun to reshape you. The invitation into the story is to say, would you, would you let God's generosity change your engagement with others? Would you let God's generosity to you begin to change the way you interact with others? Can it reshape you? Genesis 13 ends with Abram making another altar, worshiping at the altar again. The story, it's a literary device. The story is bookended by two altar scenes. Why? Because the secret to living this life is by returning to the altar over and over again. This is why we do communion every week. So that we can present ourselves again as a living sacrifice and say, God, I spent my whole week acting like this job, this 
promotion, this destiny, this ministry, this family. I spent my whole week defending it like it's mine. Being territorial and selfish and uncharitable and unkind. God, it's not mine. It's yours. And if it's yours, I've got nothing to lose. And if I've got nothing to lose, then help me to have an open heart towards everyone around me. Help me to live that way. Help me to love that way. Help me to serve that way. The altar is transformative, not just because it is the place where we offer ourselves, but it's the place where we see how God has given us everything. Romans 8 was our New Testament reading this morning. Paul says, look, God who did not spare his own son, how, what then? <laughs> what will he not give us? And then he goes on and finishes the chapter saying, look, nothing can separate you from God's love. You can't lose the thing that matters most. The only possession worth possessing, the love of God, it's already yours. And you can't lose it. You can't lose it. Death can't take it away. Trouble can't take it away. People can't take it away. A, 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 a firing, a divorce, a disease, he can't take it away. So, so Paul's like, so what do you have to lose? Nothing. Nothing. Now live like that. Live like that. Live like that. Could you imagine the freedom that comes from coming to the altar every week and saying, God, in view of your great mercy, in view of your generosity that has lavished your love on us and called us sons and daughters of God, help me to lavish this love on others. Help me to be able to be like Abram that says, hey, what do you want? You want this? I'll take that. You want this? I'll, I'll take that. Because you know what? It's all God's. And that means I can't lose. 